Hello, listeners. Buckle up for another episode of VoiceOver Work and Audiobook Sampler. Where do you listen? Today is December 15th, 2022. In his book, The Brain Mechanic, Peter Holland delves into the connection between the body and the mind, everyday actions and habits that will increase your focus, your discipline, and your critical thinking skills, the emotional power of social bonds and ties, neuroplasticity and how to do it daily, as well as the vagus nerve and how it makes or breaks your sense of calm. Thanks for joining us today for this chapter-by-chapter preview of Peter Holland's book, The Brain Mechanic. Chapter 1. Neurofitness When you break your leg, you go to the doctor. When you experience depression, you go to the psychiatrist or psychologist, maybe. And when you're having an existential crisis, you might even consult a spiritual teacher or life coach. Though we like to divide ourselves up into body, mind, and spirit, the truth is that human beings are complex wholes, and mental health is not different from physical health or even spiritual health. It's all just health in the end. It's obvious when you think about it, there is no mind without a brain, and your brain is as much a physical part of you as your legs or spleen or immune system. It doesn't matter how high-minded your ideals, how strong your will, how lofty your dreams, if your physical being is compromised, then you can never reach your highest cognitive or intellectual potential. Although it might seem counterintuitive, one of the best ways to boost not just your mental health, but your brain's ability to do what it does best, think, is to take care of your entire organism, and that includes your physical body. Take care of your physical fitness, and your brain inevitably benefits, and vice versa. Build a strong, healthy brain, and it will, in turn, help you maintain your physical health. This might seem an obvious point to some, but for others, we're dedicated to all systems working hard, pushing the boundaries, and burning the midnight oil. This simply won't work, because we're not steel and oil machines that can be pushed in that manner. In this chapter, we'll talk about just how to prepare the body so that the mind can follow. The way we can increase our neurofitness actually has little to do with activities involving the brain. Rather, it's about actions that will benefit the brain as a side effect. You'll notice this theme throughout the book as well. It's a point that bears repeating. As we understand our physiology and neurology better and better, it becomes clear that the brain adapts up or down to our daily tasks and lifestyle, and not to supposed brain training programs that purport to increase your intelligence. So, how can we make sure it's adapting in a way we want? Get moving and sweating. Physical fitness can often be defined in how active you are or how much exercise you engage in. And to be honest, it's not a bad metric to use. The vast majority of us could stand to exercise a little more than we currently are, even beyond the purposes of this book to boost our brain functioning. Of course, it's been shown that exercise assists with general cognitive functioning, including memory, but sometimes when we talk about the benefits of exercise, it becomes difficult to separate 
what helps the brain versus what supports a healthy lifestyle in general. These elements are too intertwined to bother separating. But, for instance, the body reacts to exercise by improving insulin response, reducing inflammation, boosting flexibility, increasing bone density, and becoming more resistant to injury or illness. Additionally, exercise makes you happier through the release of endorphins, it increases your self-esteem and confidence, and it even reduces the symptoms of stress and anxiety. But you probably know those benefits already. When you exercise, what exactly happens in the brain? One notable study was conducted at Radboud University in the Netherlands. Male and female subjects took a memory test, and then one-third of them exercised. Chapter 2. Neurotransmitter Fine-Tuning Understanding Dose Chemicals We've looked at the brain on a structural level and seen how it's part and parcel of our entire physical being. In this chapter, let's zoom in and look at the functioning of the brain, which is mediated and manifested by the release of certain brain chemicals called neurotransmitters. These are the brain's electrochemical messengers. It's strange to realize that every one of your thoughts, feelings, and beliefs originates and reveals itself as a chemical in your brain. The way you communicate, solve problems, set goals, and perceive yourself comes down not just to this or that brain chemical, but also to their overall relative proportion. Most cakes contain flour, eggs, and milk, but the relative amount of each of these ingredients determines whether the cake is good or not. Similarly, all human brains contain these same neurochemicals, but their relative amounts make a big, big difference. The acronym DOSE stands for the four most influential brain chemicals, neurotransmitters, that impact our overall well-being. Dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins. Simply put, these are the four key players in making us feel happy, and the logic goes that if we can moderate and balance their levels in our brains, we can boost our feelings of happiness. In his Psychology Today article, Christopher Berglund, The Neurochemicals of Happiness, 2019, explains that certain drugs can crudely alter our dose levels but that scientific research is increasingly showing that we have more control over these chemicals than was first believed and without resorting to chemical manipulation. Let's take a closer look at each neurochemical and what its role is. Oxytocin. This neurotransmitter is all about human connection and bonding. It's released anytime we're close to others and because it feels good. It has encouraged our species to be pro-social and empathetic. Oxytocin has found to be high in pregnant women during and after labor. The chemical stimulates uterine contractions as well as breastfeeding, and in men and women during orgasm. Interestingly, it's low in teenagers and those living isolated lifestyles. This love hormone, which is released any time we bond cuddle, or have sex, is associated with better mental health, monogamy, 
more satisfying relationships, and characteristics like loyalty and trustworthiness. It's not as simple as that, though. Oxytocin is sometimes thought of as an emotional amplifier. While it increases sociability to those we trust, it may actually increase feelings of distrust to those not in our inner circle. And though the chemical can sharpen our social memories, a 2010 PNAS study found that it just as readily strengthened negative social memories as pleasant ones. In this experiment, men were given oxytocin, then asked to write about their mothers. Those with positive memories wrote positively, but those with dysfunctional ones only described more vividly that dysfunction. Chapter 3. A Brainy Routine Imagine someone who struggles with poor attention and focus, bad self-esteem, and a host of annoying addictive behaviors such as gaming late into the night and drinking a little too much on the weekends. They want to make positive changes to their brain health and start taking much better care of the enormously powerful and magnificent piece of machinery sitting inside their skull. One day, they buy a brain boost supplement that's meant to help with memory, and they take it half-heartedly for a month or so before forgetting about it. Then, they play around with a brain training app on their phone but find it boring and ditch that too. Knowing a little about neurotransmitters and supporting them for better brain health, they make a plan to be more active, to socialize more, and to commit to value-aligned goals. You already know how it goes. Many of these attempts fizzle out early or never even launch in the first place. Why? What makes it so difficult to take steps to improve our cognitive fitness? It should be obvious from the research on yoga and dancing that as wonderful as these activities are for body and mind, they are not silver bullets, and their influence lies in our ability to do them consistently and harness the power of neuroplasticity and our adaptive brains. It's not a one-off action that makes or breaks the resilience and strength of our brains, but actions over time, i.e. habits, routines, and conscious thought that become unconscious action. Yoga, done weekly for years, naturally has a cumulative and more substantial effect than merely dabbling here and there. So does any type of aerobic exercise we've learned. Making a conscious effort to make your health a priority is what counts, and this is a commitment that can be renewed in every moment of every day consistently. Good habits and routines are nothing more than what we all know as common sense. The trick is to actually do them. Our health, mental, physical, or emotional, is built on the aggregate of dozens of tiny habits that all may seem insignificant on their own. In the same way, dozens of smaller, poor choices made over and over again soon crystallize into poor health that then takes a lot more effort to shift once in place. Against this crystallized mass, a single half-hearted attempt at health here or there will have very little effect, except perhaps to discourage you and convince you that real change is impossible. But if you consistently maintain yourself mostly within healthy parameters for most of the time, it then becomes almost second nature to stay there 
It's a question of momentum. Soon, it takes more energy to not follow your healthy habit than to break it. It might take a lot of effort to shift old patterns once they've ingrained themselves. But if you can make regular commitments on a small scale, you never put yourself in the position of having to make drastic action to get on the right path again. It should come as no surprise to anyone that good sleep, exercise, and proper nutrition will all make it significantly easier to maintain your brain in the peak state it needs to be to optimally process the world around you. There are now dozens of different supplements available to boost brain health, and we're all aware of the different foods that are meant to feed your brain. One aspect that even health-conscious people tend to forget, however... Chapter 4. The Social Brain The health of your body and mind is, as we've seen, intimately bound up with the health of your body. But that's not all. Your brain is a marvelous organ with the sole purpose of making sense of the world around you, and that world includes other people. No man or woman is an island, as they say, and a corollary is that no man's or woman's mental health is completely isolated from the quality of his or her interactions with others. Relationships are at the foundation of good mental health, with many psychologists now understanding that loneliness, depression, and heartbreak can be just as debilitating as more serious diseases like diabetes and hypertension. Humans are social animals, and so much of our identity, our sense of fulfillment, our joy, and our purpose in life comes directly from our connection with others. Whether that's family, friends, or the community at large, mental and cognitive health is about not just solid neural connections in the brain, but social familial, and romantic connections with others. You might even argue that it's an evolutionary quirk that sex, socialization, and being around others helped us be healthier and increase our chances of survival. Getting it on. In fact, for a specific example, there are now several different pieces of research that show a robust connection between regular sex and better cognitive health. A 2010 study showed that sexual activity was linked with neurogenesis, that is, brain growth, in male rats, and a 2013 study found that daily sexual activity also improved overall cognitive function in rats. You might suppose that rats are just primal beasts that function only on a limited set of drives, but in reality, humans are not so different. So, what about studies involving humans? A more recent 2016 study of more than 7,000 older adults showed they performed much better on cognitive tests when they had engaged in any kind of sex within the previous year than their counterparts who had not. Similar studies have also shown that sexual activity has a definite relationship with memory, improving long-term memory recall. How this finding relates to younger people or those without memory impairment is up for debate. And crucially, memory performance still declined in older people whether they had sex or not, suggesting that sex doesn't prevent memory loss with age. However, the research tells us that our baseline memory capacity may be improved by having more active sex, 
which means cognitive decline in later years may seem less pronounced. While research like this is certainly interesting, it probably paints a very two-dimensional picture of a much more complicated phenomenon. These studies controlled for some factors and found that more emotionally fulfilling sexual experiences tended to yield a greater cognitive benefit. If you remember what we learned about oxytocin and its powerful effect on the brain, this probably won't come as a surprise. Research studies like these suggest it's not the physical event of sex alone that's good for brain health, but the broader meaning such encounters have for the people involved. It's obvious that those who are in healthy, loving, mutually fulfilling relationships will derive more from sex and, in turn... Chapter 5. Mental Sabbatical A person can learn a lot about himself, the world, and his place in it by stopping for a moment to contemplate the nature of, well, nature. Observe the natural world for just a moment, and it's clear that things flow and move rhythmically, in cycles and undulations, coming and going, never quite the same from day to day. Crucially, for every upswing, there's a corresponding downswing. Spring follows winter. Animals sleep and then wake. Things grow up out of the soil and then die back down into it again. In other words, even nature itself rests, relaxes, and takes time in every cycle to do nothing. We've already covered some of the reasons it's so important to consciously build sleep, recuperation, and stillness into our daily routines. It's better for your brain. Going deeper, though, the virtue of rest is often measured in terms of how productive it makes you. Take power naps so you can be extra efficient when you wake up. Sleep eight hours so you can go even harder at the gym the next day. Go on a retreat somewhere in the mountains so you're ultra-energized to give your best at your boring office job when you get back. But even though it's true that rest allows for greater action, it's also something to be enjoyed for its own sake not because of what we can get out of it. Sometimes it's enough to unplug, to let go of goal-driven activity, to just be as we are, and let the world come to us for a moment. This is the essence of deep relaxation, letting the mind and body go without grasping on to any ideas of how that should look, and embracing stillness, softness, and quietness. Practicing calm and relaxation can be as hard as developing your focus or determination, or even harder for those type A personalities. In the same way that music has to be composed of both notes and the essential pauses and quiet between them, a life well-lived is one of both activity and passivity in balance. Otherwise, it becomes the lived equivalent of a whole lot of chaotic noise. Coincidentally, this nothingness has a host of benefits and boons for the brain that wishes to be boosted. To start with, calm is the opposite of stress, which is one of the biggest detriments to the brain's health. If you want a clear and concrete illustration of this phenomenon, you don't have to look any further than any combat veteran or trauma victim suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and how their lives are negatively affected. They literally lack the ability to function in daily life because they're so tense 
and they're likely to snap at any given moment in response to their anxiety and fear. A plethora of research has found that stress impacts the brain's health and mental capacity in hugely negative ways. This is, in large part, due to the body's physiological response to stress. But first, it'll be helpful to define the difference between the two main types of stress, chronic and acute stress. Chronic stress is when you are undergoing stress for a relatively long period of time, something as small as being under a constant heavy load at work or dealing with a relationship that is frequently combative. These are small sources of stress that seem insignificant until you look at the cumulative effects and realize that you're always on edge, testy, and tense with knots in your shoulders. When we are... Chapter 6. Protect Your Brain from Stress Your Brain on Stress Trying to maintain cognitive and mental health is a futile effort if you're constantly stressed. All the healthy habits and brain training in the world cannot undo the effect of chronic stress on the body and mind. Neuroscience is finding increasing evidence for just how bad stress is for the brain. The word stress covers many different experiences, from anxieties around work, family, and personal life, to worries about money or relationships. What they all have in common, however, is that they're perceived to be a threat in some way, and because of this perception, the body goes into automatic fight-or-flight mode. This emergency response emerged in our earliest ancestors as a protective mechanism, but it was always meant to kick in during extreme, unusual, or short-lived situations. When the fight-or-flight mechanism is overstimulated for a longer period than it was ever designed for, i.e., when we experience chronic stress, then problems develop, such as a depression, anxiety, burnout, or physical symptoms like headaches or insomnia. Before we dive in and explore ways to protect your brain from stress, which is an eternal and natural part of everyday life, but one that can, nevertheless, be managed and moderated, let's take a closer look at some of the signs that stress may be taking its toll on you and your brain. Stress Increases Mental Illness In a paper published in Molecular Psychiatry, researchers discovered that chronic stress can lead to a greater risk of developing mood disorders later in life, such as depression or anxiety. A 2015 study by Yang et al. went on to say that stress may actually play a big role in how these psychiatric disorders develop in the first place. How? One theory is that ongoing stress results in fewer neurons being produced in the brain, while at the same time, more myelin-producing cells are created. The excess myelin can actually interfere with the functions of the brain and the way nerve cells communicate with one another. Stress damages brain structure. It's so easy to think of stress as a purely psychological phenomenon, but it actually has a primarily physiological basis. Never-ending stress can literally change the structure of your brain. As we've already seen, the brain contains both white matter and gray matter. The white matter is made of the myelin-coated neural axons, which are like telephone wires connecting up various parts of the brain. The white color is due to the myelin, 
which is essentially a form of fat. The gray matter is the neurons themselves, plus the cells that support them. This part of the brain is responsible for all higher-order thinking and decision-making. In a paper titled, White Matter Abnormalities in Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Following a Specific Traumatic Event, researchers discovered that people experiencing symptoms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, tend to have an imbalanced ratio of white to gray matter. This strongly suggests that extreme or chronic stress could literally make its mark on your brain's structure, which would alter how you were able to face subsequent challenges too. It's not just the extreme single stressful events that can harm our brains, however, a background of low-grade but... Chapter 7, True Brain Training By now, it's more than clear that maintaining cognitive and mental health has a lot more to it than we previously assumed. In essence, everything discussed here is an attempt to master and optimize the brain's neuroplasticity. That is, the ability of the brain to rewire itself, literally changing neural pathways according to new information and skills it acquires. In other words, the brain adapts its structure to match its function. If you value learning, mental flexibility, good memory, and the ability to be creative, then it pays to support all your brain's functions, not just the narrower ones we've come to associate with brain exercise, chess, listening to Mozart, or doing number puzzles, for example. More and more, it seems that a strong and healthy brain and mind are the natural result of a complete lifestyle that facilitates health for the entire being. Use it or lose it perhaps describes this phenomenon best. The brain is not a muscle like the heart and doesn't need to be trained in quite the same way, but the brain is a tool composed of tissue and running on electrical and chemical energy that, through complex transformations, becomes our lived experience in this world. When you fail to use your muscles, they atrophy and weaken. When you fail to use your brain, it too becomes less conditioned over time. That's because, as we've seen, the way we use our brain has direct physical ramifications for the way it's shaped and how it functions. In the same way as those who played Tetris for three months ended up with a brain better adapted to playing Tetris, we too can shape our brains according to what we want to use it for. This is the heart of neuroplasticity. The brain eventually becomes better at what it does most. In this spirit, we can begin to think of a classic way to train the brain and make sure it's putting down new, beneficial neural pathways in the way we need it to by challenging ourselves. In this way, our brains really do have a lot in common with muscles. It's when both are pushed to the limits of their capacity that growth occurs. Challenge stretches us to accommodate new goals. We grow when we try to grasp something that's just on the edge of our ability, but not impossible to reach. Most neuroscientists and psychologists now understand IQ not to be a fixed, deterministic state of affairs, but rather an inherited range of possible IQs for each person. Then, 
Within that innate range, the environment and the person's own efforts decide where exactly they fall. With hard work and dedicated learning, a person can push themselves right to the edge of their natural range and perhaps even squeeze in some further performance from themselves. Similarly, a person who doesn't push themselves in this way will always have a store of untapped potential left over. They are capable of more, certainly, but their brain needs to be actively encouraged to reach those further bounds. Much early research into IQ and cognitive science focused on how to improve a person's natural talents. We wanted to boost memory, enhance learning, find all those secret buttons that would turn us into impressive calculating machines that could effortlessly learn languages or solve complex problems. Chapter 8. The Almighty Vagus Nerve You may have seen mention of the vagus nerve here and there, but what exactly is it? And what does it mean for your cognitive well-being? Rather than being a single nerve, the vagus nerve is more like a network of nerves that runs from the back of the neck down to the abdomen. The vagus is Latin, and it's the same root as with words like vagrant and vagabond, and implies the nerve wanders throughout the body. It's really a pair of nerves, one left and one right, and each very long. In fact, this network of nerves is the longest cranial nerve in our body and connects most of the major visceral organs in the brain. The vagus nerve coordinates an incredible array of functions, and it may be even more important than we first thought. Stimulating the vagus nerve is associated with rest and relaxation, moderating our fight-or-flight response. Many now believe the mind-body connection has a lot to do with this nerve and how it can mediate between your thoughts and your feelings, your emotional state and your physical one. It's what makes people trust their gut. In essence, it links our brains to our bodies in a significant way, and we should pay attention to something that holds such a connective power. The fascinating thing about the vagus nerve is its relationship with the breath. It responds primarily to one's breathing rate. When we breathe slowly and deeply, we don't need our heart to pump as fast in order to supply oxygen to the rest of the body. When our breathing rate slows, it's the vagus nerve that tells the heart to slow down to match. Stimulating the vagus nerve directly will have this effect on the heart, which, in turn, calms down and relaxes the entire body, dropping our heart rate. The opposite of the fight-or-flight response, the sympathetic nervous system, is the less-discussed rest-and-digest mode, or, more technically, the operation of the parasympathetic nervous system. The stress response is mediated by stress hormones, like cortisol and adrenaline. The relaxation response is mediated by the breath. Suddenly, the insistence of all those Zen masters to focus on the breath begins to make sense. This is an extremely useful piece of understanding. The relaxation response in your body can be activated directly by you by modulating your breath. The vagus nerve will always adjust your heart rate to match your breathing. While you're not in control ordinarily of your heart rate outside of doing cardio, you can impact your heart rate 
and many more internal processes by directing your breath. Of course, this trends all the way up through the brain, reducing the cortisol and other stress hormones we experience and clearing our minds for better and more energetic thought processes. It's a game changer. Instead of thinking your breath is shallow and rapid because you're stressed, it may be more accurate to say that your body is stressing because it's obeying the message of your breath. More specifically, it's a longer exhale that triggers associated nerves that activate the relaxation response. And it's during the exhale that your vagus nerve is most active, i.e. when you're the most relaxed. Professor of Neurology, Dr. Lucy Norcliffe Kaufman has been studying the vagus nerve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? Please take a moment to check out Peter Holland's website at bit.ly slash Peter Hollins and visit us at newtonmg.com. <laughs>